you know, I like the high wire. I like the challenge. I really try to look forward, not backward, and eat the elephant one bite at a time, so to speak, as it, as it comes at you. What's up, tribe? Welcome back to the podcast that brings you closer to the world's biggest risk takers and enemies of the status quo. This podcast is for people who want to take the plunge in life, but need a little nudge. I'm your host, Coach Darren K. Roberts, and I went from Harvard Law to the NFL by the grace of God and good old fashioned grit. The voice you heard at the top was Steve Patterson, who served as president and CEO of the Arizona Coyotes and has held the top leadership post with brands like the Portland Trail Blazers, Houston Rockets, and University of Texas. Steve has an interesting take on the protests that have shaken Major League Sports. Let's tune in to Steve Patterson. Let me ask you this, Steve, if I were to walk into your high school and into your 11th grade English class and ask you, what do you want to be when you grow up? What would the, <laughs> <laughs> what would the answer have been back in the 11th grade? Wow. Um, at John Foster Dulles in, uh, <laughs> in Stafford, Texas, uh, I, I don't know that I was thinking that far in advance. I mean, you know, maybe playing, uh, played basketball, but, you know, I've never really planned any of my career. I just <laughs> tried to create value for people and uh, opportunities presented themselves. Wow. What was the college application process like for you? I mean, trying to decide where to go, was that a difficult one or, or were you, you know, were you dead set? You know, it was funny. My folks grew up in Wisconsin. My father's in the Wisconsin Sports Hall of Fame. And, you know, so there was some thought about going back up there. But I went with some friends of mine to Austin uh, who were going to go to UT and visited the school in the town and, and, uh, you know, like a lot of kids do, they sort of look at their friends as to what they're doing. I like the school. We applied there, got in, and, and uh, you know, went to undergrad law school there. So that was it for you? Yeah, I really, you know, didn't think too hard about any place else. Let me ask you this. What was your time like on the 40 acres? You know, it was a, it was a great education. It gave me the opportunity to do a lot of things that I uh, hadn't done before, be exposed to new things. So, you know, everything from learning some photography from one of the world's great photographers like Jerry Winogrand, um, just walking the streets, taking pictures with him. You know, that's, that's one of the things he's really known for, to being on the Cultural Entertainment Committee and sort of reopening the the union after it had been brought back to its former glory with the uh, with uh, Duke Ellington and, you know, some of the big band folks um, to uh, learning how to scuba dive, to you know, getting a good business education, uh, to learning a lot about different people from different walks of life at that time. Um, the whole, there was the whole uh, original Iran crisis and the Shah was falling and there were a lot of people arguing both sides of that debate uh, at the school. And so yeah, that was a great education and of course, getting a chance to spend three years at the law school with, uh, with some great legal minds was uh, was a great joy as well. So let me ask you this: It sounds like, even though you studied business, you took sort of a liberal arts approach to your undergraduate years, and 
I teach around 300 students a year. And one thing that I'm always surprised about is how they are so focused on trying to narrow things down in terms of what they're going to study and who they think they want to be when they come in as freshmen. And I try to get them to view the undergraduate experience as a buffet, you know, just kind of get a little bit of this and that, and then you'll figure it out later. But it sounds like you had that mindset coming in that you were going to really put yourself in a lot of different situations and, and kind of use that to figure it out in terms of next steps later. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I thought the skills in the business school were, were beneficial in the business world later, but I, I come from a family of educators. You know, my father ran a prep school in Wisconsin before he ran the Bucks. You know, my mother's side had nine kids. Seven of them went to college and five of them graduated. And that was in the days before the GI Bill. You know, so that was a, a rarity for a family from a tiny town of a few hundred people in northern Wisconsin. And so that was a mindset that was inculcated in everybody from the beginning. And you're right, I really did take a liberal arts approach, uh, although I was in the business school, and used it as an opportunity to expose myself to things that I otherwise wouldn't have. If you were coaching yourself up as an undergrad, is there a regret or something that you would have done differently um, looking back on it now that you kind of say, you know, I wish I had tried this? You know, not really. By the time I left Austin, I'd been there for nine years, and I really felt like I'd done everything I could do there. You know, I mean, probably the only academic class that I wish I would have learned a little more about is geology. I, I, I drive around the country and you sort of look up and go, God, how did that get like that? <laughs> you know, when you look at a mountain or look at a formation or look at a cut through on a freeway or, um, but that's really the only thing I, you know, I didn't take that I, in retrospect, wish I had. I, I took a lot of English and learned to write and learned to, uh, edit well. And I think that's helped me in my pursuits, um, you know, which is not something you sort of think about when you're in the business school. Um, yeah. You know, but whether it was technical writing or creative writing or what have you, uh, legal writing. But I, I really don't, I think, have any other regrets. <laughs> First job out of law school, what was it? First job out of law school, I went to work at the Houston Rockets. Um, the league was changing dramatically. It was going from sort of these small family-run operations to larger uh, organizations that needed legal help. The salary cap had just been instituted. So I you know, ran a lot of the business and was uh, uh, team's counsel and spent a lot of time working on contract issues and cap issues and new television deals, new cable deals, uh, things like that. So it was a great opportunity. Yeah, you know, this is a dream job as a as a um, fellow law school grad. You know that I know that it's it's tough. People really would love to land in sports. And what was it like? You know, usually they have to kind of go and practice and then find some sort of backdoor way to get in. What was it like going straight into professional sports right after law school? Well, I had worked um, for many years, actually. In sports, my father founded the Bucks in Milwaukee, and I actually started answering the phone there when I was about ten years old, and we didn't even have any furniture yet. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, I got an up close education on how the basketball team worked, how the basketball camps worked. Um, in the summers, I, I 
banged the phones and sold tickets in Houston for a lot of years. So I had a chance to learn a lot about the business before I actually got in it. And then really in those days, you know, as I was saying, there were much smaller businesses. I mean, there was a time the team didn't didn't gross $100,000 in ticket sales for the season. And I remember the first time we grossed $100,000 in a game, and it was like a godsend. <laughs> um, so there were much, much smaller businesses in those days. And, you know, one of the things I tell young people is, you know, consider working in the minor leagues uh, in baseball or hockey or basketball because you get you get exposure to a, the entire breadth of the company that you otherwise don't in um, in the major league teams at first. So, you know, I deal with a lot of, uh, you know, fellows for our, our center, and these are undergrads who kind of, they want to leave undergrad and go straight to the top. And I'm like, it doesn't, it doesn't quite work that way. You've got to get in the building any way you can. And really, whether it's ticket sales or community relations, I'm of the opinion that there aren't any bad first experiences in sports. I mean, that's going to help you whether your goal is to become a general manager down the road, you can't have a bad landing spot if you're able to work at some level of sports. Uh, yeah, if you want to be in the industry, you know, everybody and their brother wants to be in the industry. I think you have to have a realistic understanding of the sacrifices that entails. You know, whenever I've gone back into working at these teams that, you know, have 80 plus games a year, it's it's a opportunity to sit down with the family and recognize, okay, this means, you know, 300 basketball games a year between attending and viewing and scouting and whatnot. Um, and you're right. I think however you can get in, get in. I, I do think, and I, I really don't quite understand the genesis of it. I mean, I guess I'm showing my age a little bit, but, uh, you know, we were just happy to be able to work in the industry and have some fun. And, you know, I, I can remember, uh, one of my early friends in the business, a guy named John Blaisdell, who runs a hedge fund now, you know, at, at the time he said, you know, I don't know how much money we're going to make doing this, but we're going to we're going to eat good and we're going to have good stories to tell. And, you know, that, that was sort of like good enough, right? And, and you're right. I see these kids come out of uh, the sports uh, management programs, and they just can't understand why they're not going to be the president of the team in two years. And uh, you know, they don't recognize it. You're going to have to show value for a couple of three years uh, beyond when you probably even deserve to be promoted uh, to get promoted. And and that first and second and third and fourth promotion isn't going to be to the corner office. Yeah, I think, you know, this. a lot of people see the, the Theos of Major League Baseball and they yeah, they see kind of the quick rise stories and they think, okay, I can I can sort of jump in the fast lane and bypass all of the, the grunt work. But um, that doesn't happen for 99.5% of the folks that eventually get to the top. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I was the youngest general manager in the NBA at that time, you know, but I'd been in the business for essentially 19 years by then. Hmm. Um, and, you know, ha- had a lot of extra entree that uh, uh, you know most peop- young people don't and so you're right it's it's uh, very very rare that uh, uh, you move that fast into those positions now you were the chief architect of that 93 94 rocket squad that won 
the world championship. Um, talk about that season and, and maybe some lessons learned and um, some things that helped you from that championship season to co- sort of frame your leadership style moving forward. Yeah, I mean, I think people often don't recognize the price that uh, success in any industry costs. That was a very difficult time. The organization, um, just like the intensity of the games, ratchets up from the preseason to the regular season and from the regular season each round of the playoffs and into the finals. There's the same geometric progression of pressure on the organization and you really have to have people of character to weather that those storms. It's not easy. It can be exhausting. It is certainly fulfilling to be there at the end of the year and win the last game, which is you know, there's only one team that does that. Um, I was you know, pleased with how the city reacted because it was a time when uh, there were riots in a lot of other cities when they won the championships. But I think the key is really you've got to hire people of good character. You've got to give them a vision, give them a direction, hold them accountable, but let them do their jobs because you better hire people that are better at their jobs than you are or you're not doing a very good job of uh, running the organization. (laughs) When you look back over your career, I mean, you've really touched sports and uh, you've had several different positions, uh, whether it's hockey or basketball or at the collegiate level. Has there been a most challenging job that you've had um, that kind of stands out from the rest? Um, You know, I don't know that I think about it that way. When you're in the moment, it can feel that way. I mean, certainly having your superstar player lay down on you and have to go toe-to-toe with him in the public is not fun. (laughs) Uh, Certainly when the NFL gave Los Angeles six months to get their act together, that wasn't a very pleasant plane ride home, although... I thought Bob McNair showed great leadership and just saying, well, they haven't gotten it done in in the last 30 years. Why are they going to get it done in the next six months? And he was right. Uh, they didn't. And it took him another, what, you know, 15, 20 years after that. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, who's counting, though? <laughs> yeah, but who's counting? <laughs> you know, uh, I've had a team that was losing $135 million a year in cash losses when I walked into Portland and had to clean up that mess. Um, you know, so I... And, and certainly we'll have our challenges here turning around the coyotes, but I you know I like the high wire, I like the challenge. I really try to look forward, not backward, and eat the elephant one bite at a time, so to speak as it as it comes at you yeah i think I think many people would would describe you as a bold leader you know while you were here and, and athletics director here at the University of Texas um made some business decisions that were controversial and I think in retrospect, a lot of people probably understand that uh a lot of those moves needed to be made. Uh, what was that tenure like here in Austin? Well, I think the school's got a, a great opportunity if it so decides to be absolutely the best, mm-hmm. but that will take a certain amount of sacrifice from a number of folks in all constituent groups. I mean, it's a great, big, you know, huge, diverse group of constituents that have uh, often not uh, views that are incongruent. And uh, if somebody can get it to where everybody's thinking in the same direction, it could be unbeatable. Yeah. You know, people ask me, what's the difference between coaching in the NFL and college? And I always say that when I would leave practice or the facility 
in the NFL, I would turn my phone off because, you know, all we did was coach football and that was it. And, uh, you know, you didn't go to any fan events or appearances. You just coached. And when I went to spend my two years in West Virginia, I was surprised at the amount of time that recruiting and alumni relations and uh, checking classes really consumed. And I think that's what a lot of people underestimate about the college game is that you have so many constituencies that um, you have to work with on the college level that um, it, it really makes for a very different experience than in the professional realm. Yeah, I, you know, as somebody who comes from an academic background, uh, but has also spent my career for the most part in the professional ranks, it's unfortunate that the press uh, that reports on college athletics and, and universities as a whole don't really appreciate the difference, the differences between professional athletics and college athletics. And, you know, I, I'm a believer that if you're going to play in college, you ought to really be a student and you ought to really get an education. And that ought to be a part of what you're doing. You shouldn't just be the minor leagues for the various, you know, four or five big leagues that are out there, six leagues that are out there. And you're right. It is a much more complicated job. Any of the sports professionally are more regimented and more businesslike, uh, but your expectation is that you have adults that are working in a, in a work environment. In college, you really are raising young people, helping them on their way to their career. 99% of them are not going to play professional athletics. And really the 99% is who we ought to be focused on, you know, not the 1% that might go on to play in the professional ranks. Because even if they go on to play in the professional ranks, the vast majority of them, the statistics show, are done in four years. So now all of a sudden here you are in your mid-20s, and if you haven't done anything academically and prepared yourself for what you're going to do after the game, you're going to flounder. And that's unfortunate. Yeah, and, and, and kind of looking back now, um, I mean, you've you've gone between professional and, and the collegiate ranks quite a bit. That student-athlete piece, how, how possible is it at a major FBS institution for there to be a balance, let's say just for a football player, um, between that student and the athlete? I think there can be, as long as all of college athletics is willing to recognize it and operate that way. I think what Larry Scott has tried to be a leader on in the Pac-12 is the right direction and, and very helpful. I, you know, I think we're selling the student-athletes short if we're merely being cannon fodder for the major professional leagues out there and may, you know, simply being their minor league system that... That's not what universities should be about, and you know there are not there are people that don't share that view, and I uh, I understand that. I don't think they're doing the university a service. I don't think they're doing the student athletes a service. I think they're posturing for their own selfish uh, self interest, and that's unfortunate. And but if all of the NCAA is committed to it, I think we'll have more positive outcomes for the long run for people that want to engage in college athletics uh, across the board. Steve, thoughts on current protests in the NFL? Obviously, this is a an above-the-fold story that doesn't look like it will go away anytime soon. 
you know, what are your thoughts on the saga that's been the past 12, 13 months in the NFL? You know, I, I have, uh, as somebody who's been beaten up by the Houston police, I have tremendous sympathy for what's happened in this country. You know, you shouldn't, shouldn't have six police officers choking men to death. You shouldn't have women arrested uh, and supposedly hang themselves over our traffic violation. I, I uh, probably have a greater appreciation for it than, uh, than a lot of white people in the country. Hmm. Um, having said that, I think a lot of white people in the country don't have an appreciation for it. You know, and the difficulty I think in this country is talking about race in any way, shape, or form. You just you really can't have a realistic conversation, I think, in, in this country, uh, and that's unfortunate. Um, you know, having said that, I, I really view the games and the platform that the games provide uh, as something separate from an individual's First Amendment rights to talk about their political views and, and protest what they see as injustice. I think players, front office people, coaches, employees of all shapes and form in all companies ought to have the right on their own time to say what they want, express themselves politically, and do what they want. I don't think the workplace is the appropriate place to do that. And you know that's that's not going to be popular with some people, and um, but I, I really view the the platform provided in the workplace, be it a professional sports team or be it a machine shop, um, uh, unless you're unless you're protesting uh, workplace issues like you know labor union issues um, in that workplace, I don't think it at the appropriate place. But having said that. I think they all have the absolute right to protest it, and I think what's happened in this country that um, probably has actually been going on more than a lot of people realize, but now that you have cameras on police officers, you, you see the video hmm. more, and so it's exposed more, hmm. um, is something that needs to be fixed in this country. And, and I view it not just in, in the impact it has on in the police realm, but in all bad actors' realms, right? I mean, I think teachers get protected by teachers' unions. You know, doctors who malpractice get protected. Um, lawyers who do a bad job in the courtroom get protected by their fellow people in the industry. And you know, I think that's something that needs to be addressed across the board because I think most cops are trying to do the right thing, and you shouldn't be painting everybody with the bad with the brush of the bad actors um but the bad actors should be weeded out and mm -hmm. uh, and held to account yeah i think that first point you made sort of alluding to that white privilege i i i'm convinced that and i you know i'm 38 and we'll be 39 in november i feel like i'm getting more cynical as i get older but um you know i think that there are a lot of white folks out there who even the the notion of white privilege just um it's they're allergic to even thinking about the existence of something like that and I, as i watch the sort of what the players are doing i get the sense that they think they need the platform that the nfl or you know insert league here gives them to amplify their point i think they think that their personal platforms aren't going to be big enough to get the message there 
But it's interesting that you, yeah, I, I think this whole white privilege piece, like you said, I don't think a lot of folks out there are willing to accept that it exists and that it's left a really, I mean, it's, it's left some psychological harm on both sides, but especially for black people. Yeah, I mean, there. When I get pulled over, I don't think it's and, and I and I do. I tend to drive fast. <laughs> Every so often, I do get pulled over. <laughs> how many how many uh, tickets have you gotten in the last year, Steve? Oh, you know they have cameras out here in Arizona. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you get a little thing, something in the mail. Man. Hey. I think, I think, yeah. There's probably, you know, I haven't been back and looked at the uh, mailbox in Austin in a bit, but I think there's, I think there might be a couple photos in there. In there. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's like, you know, was that was that flash for me? Yeah, probably. I'm the only car going going through this picture, going down this road. <laughs> I've been there. I've been there. Yeah. But, you know, but it's probably, you know, not the same, um, not the same experience. And, uh, you know, it's, it's hard in anything, you know, it's, it's, unless you've kind of walked a mile in, in the other guy's shoes, the other person's shoes, it, it, it's hard to understand. And, um, uh, you know, unfortunately, I think we have people that are um, fomenting divisiveness in this country um, when we really should be trying to figure out, you know, h- how do we talk about some of the issues we have here and, and try to come to some constructive conclusions. And, yeah. you know, that's that would be the healthier uh, approach, I would think. Yeah, you, you know, you remind me of talking about the traffic tickets. I was a second year law student and um, I'm driving, I, I'm sitting in the car and a buddy of mine is driving. We're both law students and he gets pulled over for speeding and um, good white friend of mine. And he he starts to question this officer. I mean, you would have thought, Steve, we were in con law, too. He's going back and forth, and I, with each question he asks, I, I could just feel my blood pressure going up. And, um, you know, the officer finally relented, didn't give the guy a ticket. He walks back, and I'm like, dude, what are you doing? And, and it just it hit me that throughout the entire process, he never had any fear that he would incur any kind of physical harm from from taking on this police officer right over a ticket whereas with me i'm my my oldest son is seven he's already had the lesson of you know hands at 10 and 2 and yes sir no sir yes ma'am no ma'am signaling every move to an officer you know i'm going into my glove compartment to get my insurance card um because i think it's almost you know a form of parental malpractice if I don't start those lessons early. But I think those are just, those give you a sense of kind of what you're talking about, that there are two very different experiences and that trying to get each side to see what that looks and feels like is uh, is the real challenge. Yeah, it was kind of interesting. I uh, I traveled a couple summers ago to South Africa and, you know, they had the, the committees to get people to talk about what had gone on during apartheid, and I think that probably was a, you know, watching from afar, a, a painful process. Um, but what I found when I got there was sort of more direct conversation amongst people of different ethnic backgrounds. Hmm. And in some respects, I found it healthier. Hmm. Uh, 
you know, and I, I, the country needs to find a way for people to sit down and have rational, calm conversations and stop shouting at each other over Twitter and 140 characters. Hmm. Yes. Um, when you figure out the solution, I need it because I'm trying to... Uh... Oh, I, I, I ain't got the answer. I mean, believe me. You know, it, it is a it is a source of frustration um, watching this go on every day. And, and uh, But I, we need to find a way. I don't know what the right mechanism is, but we need to find a way. It's not, it's, not, it's not right having the country, you know, literally shooting at each other. Yes. Uh, but certainly, it, it, you know, starting with the verbally shooting at each other uh, doesn't help it. And, and it, it is stunning that the, the base of what people perceive as, perceive as fact is so divergent. Mm. <laughs> yes, it, it's yeah, it, and that doesn't it doesn't matter if we're talking about North Korea or Ferguson or, yeah. um, I mean, you know, insert situation here. Co- I've had conversations with people that I think are, um, are somewhat knowledgeable, um, somewhat conscientious, but this great divergence in what actually happened, like what the fact pattern was, um, yeah. on things that seem basic to me have been alarming. Um, and I don't yeah. feel like the news media, I don't feel like there are, you know, there aren't outlets that are going out of business. I feel like there's, uh, there's just more competition to create more noise. And I don't know how we get, how do we have a civil discourse when there's such a divergence on what actually happened? Yeah. Know? Well, when you can, when you have so much niche programming available to people and they can stay in their own little echo chamber you know, left, right, alt right, you know, whatever it may be, and never hear anybody else's opinion, it moves people away from the middle or finding some common ground. I, I don't know that there's. Years ago, when, when uh, Walter Cronkite came out of, against the Vietnam War, you know, and everybody looked at Nixon and said, you know, you've lost, you've lost Cronkite, you've lost the middle of the country, right? You've lost the place where people would kind of uh, gather around and reach some consensus. Um, I don't know that that exists for a lot of America any longer. Hmm. You know, I didn't bring you on the tribe to talk politics, but I think, uh, <laughs> i tell you what, I think, I think our conversation just reminds me, you know, when people will say, hey, you know, politics and sports, they should be separate. There's no history of that. I mean, it's, Politics and sports have been intertwined since the beginning of time. And so I think this is the forum where these discussions tend to take place because it's it's what we love. And it, it's the it's the setting where at least we can come to the table together yeah. over a game. Now, whether or not we agree once we leave is different. Well, I think that is one of the great opportunities in sport, right? Because whether you're rich or poor, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, straight, gay, whatever, you know, when your team scores or your team wins, you can have a tribal, joyful, uh, you know, or or somber experience if you lose. Um, but that tribe can be much more diverse than some of the tribes that are defining us today. And so 
there's a great opportunity for sport, be it at the college level, the professional level, high school level, you know, whatever, to bring people of different backgrounds together and enjoy something or engage in something or be able to sit next to each other and go, yeah, you know, that guy looks different than me. He's not such a bad guy, you know? I mean, let's have a conversation, right? Right. Let's have an interaction that's not predicated upon, you know, what some demagogue is trying to preach to us um, for their own political or business benefit. And and that's what's, I think, great about sport. Um, you know, that's what's potentially great about the Olympic movement. Uh, you know, that's what's great about high school, college, what have you. And so if we could use that place for more opportunity of uh, interaction and, and to find some common ground and to have a, an open conversation, then I think sport really can provide a, uh, a great opportunity. Because, you know, just to go back to the kneeling thing for a second, it's really not about the kneeling. It's really about the issues right. that, that, that that brings up. You know, are, are we going to talk about police brutality? Are we going to talk about those kind of injustices? Are we going to talk, okay, fine, if we're in that conversation, you know, probably the cops got a right to say, well, you know, it's a tough job, and here's the challenges I got. Okay, I'll listen to that, you know. Doesn't mean you should be shooting people unjustly, but okay, let, let's let's hear your side of it. Uh, you know, you, you got to have a forum, you got to have a place where you can have that conversation, and, and uh, you know, sport tends to break down some of those barriers to let that happen when when it's when it's good, you know, when it's bad, and you know, soccer fans are yelling racist things. That's that's only makes it worse. Yes. Now, you mentioned Twitter. We're going to go into the two-minute drill. few questions to wrap this up. I would be interested to know, the tribe would love to know this. Let's say you've got one last tweet to humanity. This is it for you, Steve. <laughs> this is it. What would be that parting shot? Talk to each other in longer forms more often. <laughs> Talk to each other in longer forms more often. I like it. Let's say that you created a class that would be mandatory for every student on the planet. Now, this is a class that everyone is going to have to take, um, every country, everywhere around the world. What would be the title of that class? Learning and Appreciating How to Learn. <laughs> Learning and Appreciating How to Learn. Last one. Okay, this is, this is a question about writing. What is the title of the book that you have not written? What you should be doing after you don't have a job anymore. <laughs> well, okay, I want to jump on this one a little bit. What are a couple things? Because we've got some folks in the tribe who are they're either unemployed or in between jobs or looking to, to pivot to another career. What are some things that you think, just kind of off the top of your head? Well, I, I was following a friend of mine, Doug Logan. He used to be... We took the NBA to Mexico years and years ago. He was the commissioner of the Major League Soccer when it started. He's in his mid-70s. And he got himself in great shape, and he, and he was um, doing a pilgrimage in Spain and France this summer and writing about it and photographing it. And it was like, you know, that's really good. Here's a guy in his mid-70s doing the best he can to stay in great shape, going on an adventure like that. You know, I mean, he could be sitting around, laying on the couch, watching Fox News and, you know, <laughs> 
tweeting right-wing rants and being pissed off at the world. Instead, he's like going out there and, you know, hiking with a backpack with uh, 20-year-olds and monks and priests and, you know, telling stories of uh, somebody he met on the trail with uh, a woman he met on the trail whose husband had a heart attack and died on that pilgrimage last year. She was back to finish it. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. engaging in the world. I, I, it's really admirable, I thought. You know, and I think that in a time where, and I'm consciously trying to give myself um, fast from social media, uh, I, I do a three-day fast every quarter. Um, I'm trying to increase that and at a time when we are so in love with our screens, um, yeah. kind of looking up and taking the world in is something we all need to be reminded of. You're absolutely right. The, the, more and more I spend more hours turning it off every day. Hmm. And sometimes it upsets people. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, I got to, you know, I got to be able to engage with real people that are actually in front of me. <laughs> Imagine that, you know. Yeah, what a concept, huh? <laughs> Uh, Steve, we've enjoyed it. Thanks so much for joining the tribe. We've enjoyed the conversation. Great. Have fun this weekend. Take care. All right, you too. All right, tribe, thank you so much. And I mean that. Thank you for listening to today's show. For show notes and to get goodies to all of the links from the show, visit a tribe called yes.com. That's a tribe called yes.com. And I have one ask for you. If you like the show, give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher. It would really help us to spread the gospel of the tribe. And finally, special thanks to Samantha Skinner and Jacob Weiss, our co-producers and partners in crime, for serving up incredible episodes every single week from the University of Texas. Now go out there this week, slay some dragons, and keep saying yes. Yes.